Welcome to all of our clients in the U.S. and internationally of Freshfield to this 2020 post-election podcast. The U.S. presidential election is over, everything but the shouting and the cleanup, and we thought we would draw in some of our experts on issues of interest to technology companies around the world to talk about what the Biden administration is likely to mean. I think we've surpassed Churchill, who talked about Städten to Trieste. We extend our reach farther. We reach from our partner Alan Wang in China to our partner Lars Meyer in Germany, with stops along the way to Mena Kaplan in New York and in Washington, D.C., our colleagues Iman Meir, Eric Marr, and the newest Freshfield partner in the United States, Megan Rissmiller. Welcome, Megan. Great to have you. One of the areas of great interest to our technology clients is competition law. So we're going to go into that first. Eric, let me start with you. You've been in the government, in the Justice Department, in the Antitrust Division. For the major tech companies, do you think the Biden-Harris administration has increased or decreased the risk of breakups in divestitures? Thanks, Boris. Well, I think overall the risk has materially increased, and I'll give you three reasons why I think so. In the past, when administrations have changed from Republican to Democrat, we've typically seen an increase in the risk of challenge to mergers just due to the Democrats' usual, more interventionist antitrust enforcement approach when compared to the Republicans. When Obama took over, the antitrust division at DOJ took five mergers to trial and succeeded in blocking all five. And the DOJ and FTC together challenged 24 mergers and succeeded with 19 of those in either blocking them at trial or having them abandoned by the parties. It settled the other five on terms favorable to the government. So I see that kind of enforcement activity as basically the floor for a Biden administration. But if you look at both the FTC and the DOJ separately, I think there's a lot of reasons to expect much higher levels of enforcement than even under the typical Democrat administration. It's very possible that Biden, not having a real interest in antitrust himself, may cede the antitrust division appointments to the more progressive wing of the party, the Elizabeth Warrens. And if you would see that kind of change in enforcement, as I say, it'd go far along the more traditional Obama Democrat enforcement approach to something we haven't seen before. The third point concerning risk, I'll just change to the FTC, which is actually an example of what a kind of progressive wing of the Democrat Party appointment could look like. Because there we have Commissioners Chopra and Slaughter, both who come from that kind of more progressive wing of the party, who have very clearly stuck a flag in the ground calling for greater intervention, more antitrust enforcement. Just recently, when the Federal Trade Commission conditionally approved Pfizer's sale of its Upjohn division to Milan, both Commissioner Chopra and Slaughter dissented from that And Commissioner Chopra, in particular, really called out the FTC, going back through the entire history of the FTC's review of pharmaceutical mergers and pointing out that the FTC, in his view, would simply never seek to block pharmaceutical merger. And he accused the FTC of a deeply flawed approach that, quote, favors routine over rigor. Strong words, and I think a strong indication of where 
the FTC could go if, as is expected, Chairman Simons steps down and allows President-elect Biden to choose a Democrat to lead the Federal Trade Commission. So there's a real prospect for much, much more rigorous, much more heightened risk when you come to antitrust enforcement in the United States. So a couple follow-up questions for you, Eric. I guess your TLDR for our tech clients is buckle up. It's going to be a wild ride. But we're going to talk about the perceived leanings of some of the big tech companies and their founders for liberal candidates and Democratic candidates. Mena's going to talk about the implications of that from some of the recent alleged bias hearings. But given the historic support from tech companies for Democratic candidates, including overwhelmingly the Biden-Harris ticket, do you really think the government is going to try to bust them up or will they just try to modify their behavior? Well, Boris, I certainly hope that the political leanings of the tech companies aren't what affects the levels of antitrust enforcement. What I think is more likely to be the case is, I guess, one of two ways. On the one hand, it's become very politically chic in what I consider to be an age of false populism for both sides, the Republicans and the Democrats, to take a kind of big-is-bad approach, certainly on the campaign trails. You've heard that from both sides. But that doesn't change the antitrust laws. So I think there are two forces that are more likely to stem an over-aggressive antitrust enforcement approach against the tech companies. One is just a return to kind of a principled application of the antitrust laws, not using the antitrust laws in a political context to favor a particular result, but really going back to what the antitrust laws are intended to do and what they're not intended to do. And I think that alone will give the tech companies a little bit more comfort that they're back kind of on a level playing field. The second factor is actually they could get help from a quite odd place, which is the conservative judiciary. Judges are obviously less affected by the political whims of the day, and I think the courts are more likely to keep the agencies within the bounds of traditional antitrust enforcement goals than the agencies themselves. So I think you might see the policy goals and the enforcement goals of the agencies become much more aggressive, but there's still that backstop of the courts, which I think is going to make antitrust litigation a more important part of the landscape in 2021 and forward. After we talk to some of our other partners about the other regulatory issues, we're going to come back to you and Megan on merger clearance. But I do want to talk to Megan. First, welcome again to our firm. State AGs have gotten very aggressive during the Trump administration, especially toward tech companies. Now that there's a new sheriff in town, how do you think that will affect the behavior and attitudes of the state attorney generals toward the major technology companies? Yeah, you know, Boris, you're certainly correct that the state AGs have become much more active in the face of a perceived drop-off in federal enforcement. And that certainly isn't new to the Trump administration. I think there have historically been ebbs and flows in state attorney general enforcement of the antitrust laws. 
So now with President-elect Biden and Vice President Harris, do I expect them to back off? Not necessarily. I think, as Eric said, there is certainly a question of what the agencies will actually do, and a lot of that depends on the appointments that we will see. So I would imagine that the state attorneys general would continue to be aggressive if it ends up that the agencies are not as enforcement-oriented as we are predicting. However, there's always the possibility that they will back off because the new administration will start going after more and more cases that they may not have done under the Trump administration. I think the other point that we need to remember is that although the state attorneys general have been aggressive in enforcement during the last four years, they still have less expertise generally than the expert agencies in the DOJ and the FTC to go after a broad range of cases. So I wouldn't anticipate that they would go after the cases at the margins. Rather, they may go after enforcement matters that are really right in the crosshairs of things that violate the antitrust laws. Thank you, Megan. We're going to come back to M&A, but let's talk about privacy and user rights. And we have our colleague, Mena Kaplan in New York. Mena, there's been a lot of press lately about Section 230. There might be one or two people listening in who don't know what that is. Could you tell folks what that is and what the Biden-Harris administration means for any modifications of 230 protection? Sure, Boris. 230 is certainly the topic du jour. As a matter of fact, just last week, the Senate Commerce Committee had a hearing dragging the CEOs of some of the largest tech companies in to testify. 230 is essentially an early internet-focused legislation that allows platforms certain immunity, whether that's copyright or other sort of violative content, on their platforms, provided that they take steps to take it down upon becoming aware. During the Trump presidency, you saw an increased political use of Twitter and other platforms. And the Republican narrative has been that these tech platforms over-moderate and self-police under Section 230 to censor conservative voices. Biden has been very vocal that These are large platforms and benefiting from immunity isn't appropriate. They allow certain falsehoods to exist on their platforms and therefore should be more active in policing the platforms. Biden had said on the campaign trail that Section 230 should be revoked immediately for exactly the reason we were just discussing, Boris, the propagating falsehoods, which the platforms know to be false. I think interesting to see and how Congress shakes out whether they can actually get enough support behind their proposed reforms. There's been a lot of discussion in recent years for all the major tech companies about the rights of users and the extent to which companies can benefit from the user information that they have. And periodically, people float an idea for a federal user bill of rights. Are there any prospects for that kind of change under the Biden-Harris administration, or is it unlikely to affect how companies can benefit from user data? We're in a tough spot. There isn't a federal privacy law in the U.S., probably because the parties couldn't agree on several key issues, namely whether or not such a law would preempt state rights 
and whether or not such a law would allow individuals to have a cause of action against the parties who had abused their data. So the Republicans have been staunchly for preemption and against a private right, and where the Democrat proposals have always provided for a federal law to coexist with state rights, as well as an individual cause of action. The only bill that got any bipartisan support actually admitted any reference to both of those issues, which would effectively leave those issues to the courts, which aren't really in anyone's interest. On the preemption issue, Mena, do you think the tech companies will try to cut a deal whereby they agree to somewhat rigorous federal rules on privacy and use of data in return for not having to deal with 51 rules in the states and the district? Absolutely. That would be number one agenda for some of the larger tech companies for discussions with the regulators. And I think, Boris, I would even go on to say that there's additional benefits beyond just having to comply with 51 states. The nature of data today and the global reach of these platforms requires them to really comply with particularly GDPR as well as laws of other jurisdictions. Some of the most recent GDPR interpretations came out of Europe, had some inflexibility on how data is being shared or controlled by U.S. entities, which restricts the ability for data collected in Europe to actually be shared here in the U.S. So I think that you're absolutely right. Having a uniform approach can not only push ease of compliance, uniformity of definitions around what constitutes data, but also have an easier dialogue with some of the other large regulators out there, particularly in Europe. Your comment about data location and portability is a perfect segue to Alan and Iman on trade regulation. I just want to flag something that maybe Eric and I are the only two people on the call to remember. Joe Biden was chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee for a long time, and he was very close to the trial bar, as have been many of the chairs of that committee. And on your issue about private right of action on privacy, I think cutting across all of the disciplines on this call, to the extent that there are legislative initiatives in the administration, you can probably expect that both the president and the vice president will be very welcoming to the trial bar in the United States. So we may see a new wave of private rights of action coming out of the election. With that, let's turn to trade regulation. Ayman Mir, our partner in Washington, D.C., has probably been averaging about four hours a night for the last few months with various CFIUS and national security issues, primarily but not entirely involving China. Iman, what do you expect the Biden-Harris administration's approach to be on national security and trade issues, and how will it differ from the Trump administration? Starting on foreign investment and CFIUS, as a general matter, there is greater consistency on views towards China between Republicans and Democrats than there is on a whole host of other issues. So there'll be some underlying degree of consistency in terms of the U.S. approach towards dealing with China, but I think you'll see important differences in terms of what that looks like. So in the context of CFIUS, for example, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, while there was consistency between the end of the Obama administration and the Trump administration in terms of the focus of the committee on China and perceiving China as raising risks related to technology transfer, 
there was a fairly significant difference in the emphasis on CFIUS between the administrations and one that I would expect would reappear under a Biden administration. And by that, I mean that CFIUS was a significant priority for the Trump administration and the current Secretary of the Treasury. And as a result, we've seen a significant expansion of CFIUS authorities and an increase in the size of the CFIUS organization in government. A Biden administration is more likely to see CFIUS as a quiet tool to be used as a last resort and not as a tool to pursue specific policy objectives. In the Bush administration, the position I last held in government, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Investment Security, was created as a political position. In the Obama administration, that position was flipped over to a career civil service position, which is the position that I held, including for a year and a half in the Trump administration. But then after I left, my successor was, again, designated as a political appointee. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not a Biden administration turns it back to a career civil service position or views it as a political position. It'll be telling in terms of how they intend to use CFIUS or how they view the profile of CFIUS. On the substance, China will undoubtedly remain a significant focus of CFIUS. I think the underlying concerns related to Chinese technology acquisitions and national security risks related to Chinese investment in the U.S. were shared amongst career officials during the Obama administration, and many of them did, of course, carry over into the Trump administration. And notwithstanding a lot of the political noise around TikTok and U.S.-China policy interests outside of CFIUS, CFIUS' approach to China has been relatively predictable in light of the underlying concerns, so much so that talking points related to CFIUS that we put into place in the last year of the Bush administration when I joined Treasury were the same ones that have continued through the Obama administration and now are being used by the Trump administration. So I think the underlying on the substance of what CFIUS is and what it's supposed to do, its focus on national security, is not likely to change significantly. So I think we can expect the Biden administration to continue to closely scrutinize Chinese investment. There may be some transactions that can get through at the margins with significant mitigation that the Trump administration was not allowing to get through. But I think on the whole, you'll probably see a fairly rigorous approach continuing with respect to Chinese investment. And on national security more generally, this, of course, as I said, is an area that Republicans and Democrats have found common cause on and rarely against China as leading national security risk. I think while senior most officials in the Trump White House and Secretary Pompeo have minced no words in characterizing the relationship with China in zero-sum terms, and even going further in Cold War terms and going further in saying that it's a distrust but verify approach. And we'll have to see who Biden selects for key positions because there's a good chance we'll see a return to a more technocratic approach of referring to China as a strategic competitor but not necessarily describing it as an enemy. And this is in part because I think the Cold War approach of the Trump administration hasn't done a whole lot to foster cooperation with allies in dealing with China. And I think you'll see a common theme on foreign policy and security issues in the Biden administration being one of going back to an approach of trying to enlist the support of our allies. Obviously, part of the rationale for President Trump's election in 2016 was to change the trade environment. How do you think that the Biden administration will differ on key trade issues? I think it's not clear yet that the Biden administration, at least with respect to China, will take immediately a different approach. I think it's less than likely that off the bat there will be a change in tariff policy because I think a Biden administration would want to use whatever leverage exists with the tariffs in order to get some concessions from China. 
And I think there will be some domestic constituencies that have benefited from the tariffs that may also make it difficult to immediately withdraw them. More generally, trade policy hasn't been a big area of focus for Biden. Thank you, Ayman. We're now going to turn to Alan to get the perspective of our clients in Asia. Alan Wong is based in Beijing and Shanghai, but works with companies throughout Asia. Alan, what do you think our clients in your region expect to be different under Biden administration? Well, I think over the past four years, the national security and trade policies with the Trump administration certainly caused significant disruptions to the economies of Asia, including to many of our clients, mostly in terms of two-way investment flows and relation to the tech supply chain. For example, Chinese direct investment into the U.S. has fallen by 90% over the past year compared to its peak in 2016. And now one of the threshold questions for many Chinese companies when considering an outbound acquisition is whether there is a U.S. element and how to get around CFIUS. And if CFIUS review is deemed unavoidable, then it can often be a deal breaker for the Chinese buyer. And there is no real expectation in China that under a new Biden administration, the U.S. will become somewhat more friendly to Chinese investors. And the assumption is that CFIUS will continue to intensely scrutinize any inbound investment with a Chinese element, although it is possible that under a Biden administration, there could be perhaps a more fact-based approach in reviewing Chinese investments and less southernphobic paranoia, so to speak. In part, this may also depend on the reciprocal market access measures that China is willing to grant to U.S. investors. Just in the past year, we have seen Goldman Sachs being allowed to take control of a Chinese securities joint venture, PepsiCo acquiring a leading Chinese snack food company, and Tesla establishing a wholly owned electric vehicle plant in Shanghai. So arguably, at the moment, it is easier for a U.S. investor coming to China than the other way around. And China and the U.S. had in the past decade been negotiating a bilateral investment treaty, which had stalled. And in the current political climate, it's probably rather unlikely that negotiations could be resurrected anytime soon, even under Biden. But on the other hand, the more sort of strict CFIUS regime which had impacted more on Chinese investors, has proven to be somewhat of a blessing for um, non-Chinese investors from Asia. Japanese and Korean companies, for example, they've benefited from the absence of Chinese bidders in cross-border deals these days, particularly deals into the U.S. But in terms of the tariffs and its impact on the supply chain, the picture is actually, I think, much more mixed. And evidence seems to suggest that Trump's use of tariffs hasn't really achieved its objective of reducing the bilateral deficit or shift supply chains away from China. Um, for example, despite the tariffs, China has actually returned as the U.S.'s number one trading partner this year. And the trade deficit with China has only decreased marginally. But the U.S.'s overall global deficit has actually risen during Trump's presidency. And in terms of the shift in supply chains, if anything, recent data actually shows that as a result of China having been able to contain the pandemic and get most of its factories back to work, the country has managed to strengthen its grip on global supply chains. Under a Biden administration, there may not necessarily be a quick rollback of the tariffs. In fact, I think Biden, as part of his campaign, is also very much focused on bringing jobs, particularly manufacturing jobs, back to America. There's this Made in America initiative. 
So all of that would seem to suggest that Biden may continue to pursue a somewhat more protectionist policy, although not a policy that is as radical as the one that was adopted by Trump. I think the greater impact on tech supply chains is being caused by the imposition of sanctions on Chinese tech companies such as Huawei and export restrictions on leading Chinese semiconductor manufacturers such as SMIC. This has caused quite a lot of short-term pain for these companies, as well as for their component suppliers in Asia and elsewhere. But in the longer term, these restrictions will seem to have only strengthened China's resolve to build up its own semiconductor industry from top to bottom and reduce the use of American technology. And this has already and will continue to hurt the bottom lines of major U.S. tech companies in the years to come. In response to the U.S. sanctions, China has recently rolled out its own countermeasures, including a new export control law that is now significantly wider in scope than the previous very limited export control regime that they had, and the introduction of the so-called unreliable entities list, which could serve to restrict any foreign entity that is deemed to be an unreliable supplier or a business partner from conducting transactions with Chinese entities. And there's been a lot of speculation as to which foreign companies are likely to find themselves on this so-called unreliable entities list. These measures are generally seen as China beefing up its own legal arsenal in preparation for any escalation in the ongoing tech and trade war. But these may not actually be used against U.S. companies so long as they perceive the U.S. administration as refraining from imposing further sanctions or further restrictions on Chinese companies. Thank you, Alan. We're going to go from our clients in Asia to our clients in Europe. And we're joined by Lars Meyer, who's based in Berlin and Frankfurt and is the global co-head of our tech practice. Lars, how do you think the tech and business communities in Europe will view the change from the Trump administration to the Biden administration? I think there are three main elements to my answer to that question. I think certainly there's a hope and an expectation for more predictability and less volatility in terms of policy from the U.S. administration. With Trump, of course, in Europe, the business communities, and especially also the tech community, felt the quest for geopolitical and economic supremacy and all of the measures that flowed from that in terms of trade policy, foreign investments, customs duties, and things like that. I also think there's a hope for more international cooperation on key global goals, including the WHO, climate matters, and what have you. And from a more European perspective, of course, uncertainties will remain. We have Brexit ahead of us. We already see tech companies taking a very close look at what it means for them, for instance, in the fintech space. And we have what Alan mentioned, the role of Chinese tech and its regulation potentially in the US and in Europe. And people will be watching that closely. And together with that, a question around what we call the decoupling of the World Wide Web and its fragmentation into more regional clusters. So that's one. Number two is generally the European market, of course, is also riding on a high. When you look at M&A, you've had a resurgence of big ticket M&A in the third quarter of this year. So that's, of course, market recovery, but also, I think, a sign of confidence. And the U.S., economy is driving M&A, and that shows confidence of the U.S. economy in the future. And the European tech community, of course, also looks at venture capital funding, especially from the U.S., 
where there's been a strong uptick in inflows recently, and hopefully that will continue. And the third element is everything around what the new administration will do to potentially regulate big tech, tech in general or not, whether there will be more international cooperation, whether the US will be a bit less assertive in the trade policy. I think this will all be very interesting also from a European perspective. EU regulators have been pretty tough on American tech companies. Do you think now that there's an administration that some on this call expect will be very rigorous with the tech companies from a regulatory standpoint? Do you think the EU will back off or is this not really going to affect the EU's regulatory stamps? It's an interesting question. I think, yes, people at this side of the pond have been looking very closely at the DOJ versus Google lawsuit on search dominance. Generally, the EU and member states, in fact, have been pretty independent in trying to figure out what measures they want to take. Of course, I think everyone in Europe appreciates cooperation around these topics, but there is a very own dynamic in Europe, pressure on governments to figure out what they should be doing to foster competition in tech. Of course, these are all very, very attractive, very popular services. But at the same time, with the EU emphasis on consumer protection, on, as I said, fostering competition, puts pressure to actually come up with the right tools. And that can be thinking about tougher rules for especially platforms. There's talk of a Digital Services Act in the EU, which would curb market power through restrictions around data sharing, transparency about how big tech companies or platforms gather information, self-preferencing issues, and in extreme cases, also thoughts about breaking up big tech companies. Now, I think all of that has its very own dynamic in Europe. And so that coupled with recent activities we've seen around tax investigations into large M&A transactions, and also national proposals to, for example, scrutinize mergers in tech or have a think about foreign investment restrictions. I think all of that is very interesting and shows you that there is a lot of activity over here as well, which is going to continue, I'm sure, if there's more cooperation, more comparing of notes, I think that will be appreciated. But I don't think the EU will back off just given the fact that we have a new administration. Thank you, Lars. We're going to turn briefly to patent protection, and then we're going to close with Megan and Eric on merger predictions. Mena, do you think the new administration has significant implications for patent protection and the balance between the patent holders and those innovators who challenge them? Let's just put IP as a whole on the table and maybe start breaking it up. President-elect has been very vocal as a vice president and had these sort of very warm inroads in Hollywood over his position on copyright theft and general trade secret theft, particularly coming out of China. And I think we heard Ayman talk earlier about knocking down some of the rhetoric with China and having more of a unified global approach on addressing some of these issues. So I think we're certainly going to see a strengthening of intellectual property rights across the board. 
with the one caveat I would flag is around non-competes. That is a tool that's used broadly throughout the tech community around developers and such. And I think is part of Biden's campaign, he's been vocal on eliminating all forms of non-competes other than in certain very essential environments. So I think we'll see certainly a strengthening of IP rights. When you talk about patents per se, I think patents fall into a really interesting category. Biden, prior to his current election, has been very active in cancer research. As we know, the vice president's mother was a cancer researcher and also unfortunately passed from cancer. And that community and where Biden has been focal has been against compulsory licenses. So we can certainly see from his track record a strengthening of patent rights. Interestingly, the Qualcomm case that the FTC started under the Obama administration and which the FTC won at trial, which found that Qualcomm abused its patents and its commitments to license those patents in a friend, fair and reasonable and non-discriminatory manner, was overturned at appeal at the Ninth Circuit and the FTC appealed to the Ninth Circuit in banc, and that has been rejected. So left to see what happens with Commissioner Simons and what approach FTC takes on enforcing those friend commitments. We began with antitrust, and we're going to wrap up on that in the context of mergers rather than busting up companies. Megan, in the last few years, some senators have proposed essentially a moratorium on any other acquisitions by the major tech companies, just saying you're big enough and powerful enough, you can't buy anybody. Is that a realistic threat, and do you see the Biden-Harris administration going in that direction at all? I don't think it's a realistic threat without legislation change. You may be speaking about some of the comments in the antitrust subcommittee report that came out in October. That subcommittee report really is just the beginning of the process. And of course, it included a wide array of problems that they've described with the tech industry and the tech companies' behaviors, but also a wide array of potential solutions. And the way I see it really is that subcommittee report is essentially a wish list. And it includes some things that are so potentially far left or far progressive than might ever ultimately come to pass. And so I think this proposal that you're talking about, where these tech companies would be prohibited from making future acquisitions, falls into the category of things that are proposed to get people who are more moderate to potentially move slightly to the left and to take a closer look at some of the acquisitions. Could Congress introduce legislation early in the next term? Possibly. But I think the legislative sausage making could certainly water down some of the more strident proposals, including this one. And in particular, I think there is certainly bipartisan agreement on some of the issues that came out in the subcommittee report. But this one in particular, the Republicans on the subcommittee found it really goes too far. But I think one area of agreement and something that we could see that might achieve some of the aims of the subcommittee or the Democrats on the subcommittee would be additional funding for the agencies. And with that funding, the agencies could do more. So anything from instigating more investigations to pursuing more retrospective industry studies, like the 6B study that the FTC is undertaking right now, to taking on potentially even more risky litigation matters to try to block deals instead of agreeing to settlements. And when we think about legislation changes in the near term, there are lots and lots of other priorities that resonate a lot more with constituents than, frankly, legislation on antitrust, I think. 
certainly COVID, getting people back to work, repairing the economy, healthcare, climate change, these are all going to be priorities to push this particular proposal and some of the more drastic recommendations in the subcommittee report back to the end of the line. Useful perspective, Megan. Thank you. Eric, you're going to get the final word. You're going to be our prognosticator in chief. For our tech clients in different countries around the world, is antitrust clearance now going to be more or less likely for a merger under the Biden administration than the Trump administration? And what are your words of advice for them as they assess whether to acquire particular companies? Well, I think the chances of having a merger challenged under the Biden administration are much greater than they were under the Trump administration. I also think on the kind of positive side, the chances of having your merger challenged under the Biden administration is likely to be more predictable. I think we're likely to see a more cohesive, cogent statement of the administration's views on mergers in general and tech mergers in particular. So you'll be able to see it coming, unlike perhaps some of the more perhaps politically motivated or policy motivated challenges by the Trump administration. My advice, however, is that just because you can see it coming doesn't mean you should back down. I think the more challenges we see could be motivated by a more progressive approach to antitrust taken by the policymakers in the FTC and or the DOJ. But as we all know, those policymakers can't block mergers themselves in the United States. They must go to the courts to do that. So my advice to tech companies is to prepare to litigate as you're considering your merger right from the start. Because showing that litigation credibility and the willingness to take the matter to trial if required to is going to be important to leverage and credibility in the negotiations with the agencies. It may be that the agencies decide that they've won a lot of cases, at least in the Obama administration. Maybe they won too many cases. And if they're not out there pushing the envelope and losing a few, they're not doing enough. Tech companies should be preparing from the very beginning of consideration of merger to give the agencies those losses by taking them to court. And the more conservative judiciary we have today than four years ago, I think, increases the possibility of success in those kind of litigations. Thank you to my colleagues for joining us today to assess the impact of the election on tech companies. And thank you to the clients, colleagues, and friends of Freshfields for joining us today. Thank you.